And in this series, we're looking at a number of these high-profile stories of people who are walking away from the faith, who for various reasons have deconstructed, deconverted. And we're trying to break down the reasons why that's, that's happening. Trying to look at whether there are consistent factors that are leading to this taking place. Or, or at the very least, consistent factors that are causing people to question their faith, e- even if they don't walk away. And we're also asking the question, and we're going to look at some things tonight, that we should walk away from, that, that we should think about deconstructing, and, and things in our evangelical Christianity that need to be walked away from. So far in the series, we looked at the story of Joseph Solomon, um, who was a popular Christian influencer who um, deconstructed a short time ago. Last week, we looked at the story of John Steingard, the lead singer for a group called Hawk Nelson, who a short time ago came out as an atheist. And we lined up their stories next to the biblical figures of Thomas and John the Baptist. And and we've looked at the relationship between faith and doubt. And and we've learned that faith and doubt can actually coexist. That that these two things are not mutually exclusive. That you can have great faith and great courage and yet still wrestle with questions and doubts. And we've talked about the importance of having an authentic real community in which we can wrestle with these things together, where where we can line up with lab partners and dissect our doubts. And so today, we're going to examine what happens when you build your faith on the wrong foundation. And building your faith on the wrong foundation makes it destined to topple over. If your faith is built on serving God instead of knowing God, you'll accomplish neither. And you may end up giving up on God altogether. In 1997, a book was released that took the evangelical world by storm. Over uh, 1.2 million copies of this book were sold. That means if you were a part of church subculture in the mid-90s, You had either read the book or you knew somebody who did. It was very rare to find any Christian who hadn't at least heard of it. Countless youth groups were doing studies off of it. Parents absolutely gushed over it and had their teenagers reading it and following it, regardless of whether the teenagers felt positive about it or not. It was one of the most influential books published in the last 30 years. And it breathed new life into a particular emphasis of spiritual discipline. Any guesses as to what that book was? I Kissed Dating Goodbye. That's right. Anybody read that book here? All right, cool. So a few of you. Um, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, written by Joshua Harris. Um, Looking out at the crowd, most of you were too young uh, for that. But uh, those of us who are old enough to remember the 90s, uh, remember I Kiss Dating Goodbye and Joshua Harris. Now, it would be a mistake to say that Joshua Harris invented purity culture. He did not. Okay? Purity culture has been around for thousands of years. But it would be fair to say that Joshua Harris was perhaps the single greatest influence over purity culture in the mid-90s and the early 2000s. He sparked not only his own movement with I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but he also stoked the fire of other purity culture movements. Things like True Love Waits, 
promise keepers, silver ring thing, and father-daughter purity balls with abstinence pledges. Um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye was a systemic approach to abstinence. The goal was purity, obviously, but instead of just making an abstinence pledge, Harris advocated removing the things that he believed led to premarital sex. The biggest is the system of dating itself. And so, uh, if you're never alone with someone, then it's impossible to compromise with someone. So he advocated that Christians stop dating, and then instead they should commit to courtship. And courtship includes uh, group activities and close parental involvement and oversight. Harris and the rest of the movers and shakers in the uh, purity movement. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't connect movers and shakers to purity movement. That's, that's probably a non sequitur. Um, <laughs> Harris and the rest of the purity movement um, stressed the deep damage that could be caused by any type of sexual compromise. A person needed to commit to complete and total abstinence. Their first kiss should be at the altar. They should never hold hands. They should never side hug for longer than three seconds. Uh, That actually was uh, a rule at Liberty University where I attended uh, college. You couldn't side hug for any longer than three seconds or you might get written up. That's a true story. Um, And don't ever, God forbid, do anything like cuddle, okay? Because doing so would stoke the hellfire of passion and it would destroy you. So if you fell into sin, that means you would enter into marriage as used goods. Your spouse would not have all of you because you had given an irretrievable part of yourself to someone else. And while we're at it, purity movement was not just about sex. It was also making sure you don't drink, you don't do drugs, you don't smoke, you don't cuss. Those are deal breakers too. The flip side of this was that if you managed to keep yourself undefiled and you walked down the aisle to marry another person who had kept themselves undefiled, God was going to richly bless you with the greatest and most satisfying, incredible marriage and sex life. And so one um, author astutely referred to this kind of teaching as a sort of sexual prosperity gospel. If you serve God well, he will richly bless you. Rather than it being about possessions and wealth, it would be about a great marriage. Now prior to writing I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Harris had spent his high school years publishing a magazine called New Attitude, which was geared toward fellow homeschoolers. Um, Any other homeschoolers here? All right, yes. I'm not the only one. I was homeschooled K through 12, okay? And I hope that you would agree I turned out kind of normal, right? Normal-ish. I got a thumbs up. Thank you. My wife says the jury's out. Um, So he was homeschooled. Uh, He he published a magazine for homeschoolers. But by the time Harris released this book, Harris was just 20 years old. He was 20 and he was single. It would be three years until he met his, his eventual wife. And he began to write this book at 18 years old. Okay, do we have any 18-year-olds here? 
Okay, one. Is that it? Do you have the world figured out? No? Okay. Thank you for admitting that. Harris, on the other hand, believed that he had. He, at 18 years old, became the face of a nationwide paradigm shift in Christian culture. He traveled nationwide, speaking at conferences, doing training sessions, doing interviews. And then shortly after becoming an evangelical superstar, he moved to Maryland and began to intern under C.J. Mahaney, a pastor of a megachurch called Covenant Life. And at age 30, Josh Harris assumed the role of senior pastor of Covenant Life, becoming the spiritual leader directly over 2,000 people. And he led his church much in the same way that he led the, the purity movement, advocating a life of extreme commitment. And for a while, things went well. But then his church got sued. Sued because of how they handled a case of child sexual abuse. They had tried to deal with it internally rather than bringing it to the police. In 2015, he resigned as the pastor of Covenant Life, saying that he needed time to hear from Jesus what his plan should be. At this point, he also decided to enroll in seminary. And this was the first time that he had ever stepped foot in any kind of classroom. He also began to grapple at this point with the real-life effects that his book was having in people's lives. In 2016, he began to apologize to people for how they had been hurt by his book and by following everything that he had written. As it turns out, this sexual prosperity gospel wasn't working out so well. And there were countless people who were driven into shame, into depression, even into deconversion from Christianity altogether. And so by 2018, Harris had disavowed the book completely and, and discontinued its publication. He then starred in a documentary called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which essentially was just a videotaped apology tour. And then, in 2019... He announced on Instagram that he and his wife were separating due to significant changes that have taken place in both of us. And then shortly after, he posted on Instagram his own deconversion, saying, by all measures of what defines a Christian, I am no longer a Christian. So he went from being literally the face of one of the largest Christian movements in the last 50 years to divorcing his wife and divorcing Christianity and leaving the ministry altogether. Mike Cosper from Christianity Today describes the downfall in this way. He says, By the beginning of 2015, Harris had pastored Grace through five years of conflict, separation from the ministry that he started, significant revisions to internal governance. He'd also lost his mother to cancer. He lost his relationship to mentor C.J. Mahaney, and he began to reckon with the reality that his book had been a source of pain in the lives of people who read it and who were brought up under its framework of expectations. He was exhausted, unsure of his future, and for the first time since he was a teenager, unsure of what he even believed anymore. Today, Joshua Harris is a frequent speaker 
on the damage of purity culture, the culture that he himself once championed. And though he says he is perhaps open to God at some point somewhere in the future, at some level, today he is content with agnosticism. In his own words, his massive failures contributed greatly to his crisis of identity afterward. So, if we ask the question, why did Joshua Harris fall away? In part, perhaps, I think, it was because he could not live up to the perfect performance that he preached. And doing so made him, at, made him question whether any of the things that he was preaching were real at all. If it didn't make him who he thought it would make him, how could it then be true for others? And so his answer became, all of this must be bad. This is all restricting. This is not good for people. The answer has to be outside of these walls that I've built. And so he found his solace by saying simply that Christianity was not real. And so here is the main principle that we will be looking at this evening. When your religion is about what you do for God, rather than what he has done for you, it will crush you and spit you out. When you have a religion that's built upon what you do for God, rather than what God has done for you, it will crush you and it will spit you out. Today in scripture, we're going to look at the story of a religious leader whose ministry was largely based on litigating purity who had a huge platform in which he exercised his influence in telling people the things they needed to do in order to earn God's favor or lose it completely. But unlike Harris, who deconstructed away from God, the man we'll be looking at deconstructed toward God. We'll call this story, I Kissed Self-Righteousness Goodbye. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, "Truly, Truly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and, and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, 
How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we'll jump right in here with point number one. Eli, if you want to put point number one on the screen. Point number one is this. A platform for God doesn't guarantee a connection with God. A platform for God doesn't necessarily guarantee a connection with God. We uh, learn in the first verse uh, of this chapter that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, that he was a ruler of the Jews. That means he is a teacher of the law. Uh, later on, we'll see in chapter 7, he is going to be someone who is speaking with authority in the, the council. So what we have here is an elite, incredibly learned, and very influential religious leader. To say that he was a ruler of the Jews is referring to the fact that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a religious council that's essentially the high council of Judaism. In the Sanhedrin, there were 70 members and the high priest who was over them governing. And so these 70 members consisted of chief priest, former high priest, and rulers of the 24 different divisions of elders and scribes. And so this was the most influential group of religious leaders that there was. And this group of leaders, in addition to their temple duties, was also a legal body that tried cases of people who had broken the Mosaic law, the laws concerning ritual purity. They were the ones who would hand down death penalties for breaking the Mosaic law. They were in charge of excommunication. There would have been no one in the first century who would have viewed these men as being far from God. If anything, everyone thought that these men were closer to God than anyone. They were the ones who knew all about what God desired for us. They were the ones who taught all of the people how to follow God's law. They were the ones publicly displaying what righteousness looked like. And yet Jesus refers to them as sons of the devil, as whitewashed tombs, as hypocrites. Here's the thing. Being in a place of religious influence doesn't mean that you've been given anything except for a platform. That's it. I think you'll agree that today we live in a celebrity culture, right? You would agree with that? Celebrity culture? We live in a culture where people can be famous for nothing other than being famous. Social media and YouTube have made this all the more prevalent. People with no discernible talent 
or valuable wisdom to offer anyone have millions and millions of followers who wait for their every idiotic move. Um, my children have a few YouTube channels that I like, things like Dude Perfect, those guys are awesome. Then there are other channels that they watch that I hate, okay? It's just people either playing with toys or destroying things. And I'm like, listen, guys, daddy grew up poor, okay? We didn't just destroy stuff. We had to beg, borrow, and steal to even get stuff, all right? So when I watch people just throw things away, it grates on me. But we've created a culture in which people have a platform. And in this celebrity culture, we also have Christian influencers. We, we looked at one in week one. Now, completely by accident, I'm sure, most of these uh, Christian influencers are typically the best looking, the most engaging, the most interesting, and talented, right? They're the ones that get the most subscribers. And so people flock to whatever their stream of media is, and then they take those people and they place them on a high platform of idealism. And we say, these are the people who are going to teach us how to follow Jesus. And we hit the like button, we click share, and we try to put into practice whatever it is that they've told us to do. Now in this, hear me, I, I'm not dogging Christian celebrities, okay? Not all of them. There, there are a number of very wise, very good believers who are making a difference for the kingdom. What I am trying to speak negatively of is what we as a crowd do with these leaders. We put them in this unapproachably high place and we begin to view them as idols, Now, here's what we have to understand about the Pharisees in the first century. The Pharisees were the religious celebrities. Now, every culture, in a sense, every culture is a celebrity culture. It just looks different. Every culture has people that it idolizes. And in this culture, these were the guys that that were idolized. Jesus says so himself. In, In Matthew 23, talking about the Pharisees, Jesus says, "...they do all their deeds to be seen by others." They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. They absolutely are religious celebrities. They would walk into the marketplace with their entourage of disciples flanking them, and people would go, oh, there's, there's Nicodemus. Quick, take a mental picture of me. Because I didn't have cameras. Do do you get it? Take a mental picture of me? I don't think you get it. So who would have thought that in a million years, most of these guys don't even know God? Most of these guys have no connection with him whatsoever. In fact, we're further from God than the worst of sinners. It took Jesus to point that out. So here's the point. Celebrity in and of itself isn't bad. There's nothing bad inherently about fame. Again, there's some really great Christian influencers, whether they're musicians or poets or content creators or pastors, whomever. There are plenty of people in positions of religious influence that are really great. 
But there's also plenty of people in positions of religious influence that don't know God. It might seem like they do, but Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As hard as it is to believe, there are pastors out there leading churches who don't truly know God. There are artists in Christian music making Christian music that don't truly know God. There are lay leaders who are preaching at conferences, writing books, discipling others on YouTube who don't truly know God. That is just a fact. So what do we do with that fact? Am I standing up here saying, don't trust anyone. Everyone could be a snake. Guard up, everyone. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is we need to temper our expectations. We need to make sure that we are not idolizing anyone. Regardless of who they are or how great their content is or how great their teaching, we cannot make an idol out of any man. We need to make sure that our faith is actually in Jesus, not in any human leader. It is fine and good to respect leaders, to learn from them, to have your favorites that that you identify with really closely. But don't build your faith on them. Because here's the thing, even the really good ones, even the really great ones, the ones who know the Lord and are out there trying to make a difference for the kingdom, guess what? They're still human. And they are absolutely going to make mistakes. They're definitely going to sin. And sometimes they will do so in very damaging and very public ways for which they must be held accountable. And that's heartbreaking to watch. It's disappointing. It's, it's discouraging. When people like Joshua Harris fall away, it is sad. But it should also show us the damage that's done when we make idols out of those who are on platforms. Um, Mike Cosper from Christianity Today said this about the, the director who made the documentary, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was a surprise to her when Joshua Harris walked away from the faith. She walked closely with him in that process. And so when Harris walked away, she was like, what is going on? And so here's what Mike Cosper says about this. Looking at her story speaks again to the peril of celebrity. It's so tempting to look for a mascot for our spiritual journeys, to hang our hats on them as representations of us, that what we share with them helps validate us. And then when they disappoint, it's disorienting. It hurts us at a deep level. Absolutely. When we look so highly at, at a leader and then they fall, it knocks us off our axis. And we, we start to question, if it happened to them, could it happen to me? And that's why we talked last week about the, the, the fact that the object of our faith is so important. The object of our faith has to be Jesus. He is the only one that will never let us down. He is the only one that will never make a mistake. He's the only one that will never sin against us. Every other leader will. To quote Ruslan again, it's fine to be bummed out when these sorts of things happen. 
these stories of deconstruction, these stories of, of damaging sin, like Ravi Zacharias or, or Mark Driscoll or Carl Lentz. It's fine to be disappointed, but it's not fine to be unmoored. These people did not author your faith, so they shouldn't have the power to rewrite it. Let me say that one more time. These people did not author your faith, so they should not have the power to rewrite it. Nicodemus is about to have the only person who is qualified to rewrite his faith show him how to do that. So let's continue in our passage, looking at verses 2 through 4. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So here is point number two. Purity is a signpost, not a destination. Purity is a signpost, not a destination. So notice what Nicodemus does. Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again. And his immediate response to Jesus telling him that he needs to be born again, which is a spiritual statement, Nicodemus asks a question that essentially boils down to him saying, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? As a Pharisee, Nicodemus' entire religion, his entire faith system was all about achieving purity, doing rituals, performing religious things in order to earn his favor with God, following the Mosaic law as perfectly as possible. Um, Bruce Chilton, who is editor of a work entitled In Quest of the Historical Pharisees, puts it like this. He says, One of the greatest concerns of temple rites was purity, that both the people who entered the temple and the animals sacrificed there were pure, pure enough to satisfy God. The Torah contains written commandments that explain the proper way to conduct temple sacrifices, but the Pharisees also claimed that they had additional divine instructions that had been passed down through centuries of oral tradition. The Pharisees believed they had a special reserve of knowledge for determining purity. They taught that their oral tradition went all the way back to Moses at Sinai. So not only was there a written Torah, which anyone could have access to, there was also an oral Torah, which was inside the Pharisaic movement. In that sense the Pharisees became a movement for the purity of the Jewish people. Sounds curiously like Joshua Harris, wouldn't you say? The Pharisees taught this religion of rigid law-keeping, multitudinous religious rituals, scriptural memorization, etc., etc., In other words, they taught God wants you to follow these strict guidelines. And if you don't, you won't be saved. You have to serve God in these ways. Otherwise, you are not faithful. 
You have to learn all this knowledge about the Bible. Otherwise, you are not a carrier of truth. That, in a nutshell, is the religion of Joshua Harris and I Kiss Dating Goodbye. You must kiss dating goodbye. You must follow these guidelines in order for God to bless you with a happy life. You must avoid the pitfalls of the world lest you irreparably damage yourself and become used goods. Harris gave people a path for how he taught to serve God best. And again, that wasn't just limited to dating. It was limited to every area of life. Now you might say, well, wait a second. Doesn't God command purity? Did did Joshua Harris teach things that he just made up out of thin air? Doesn't the Bible contain commands for for Howard to, to purely follow after him? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. But what Joshua Harris and the Pharisees in in, in the, the first century were doing with those laws was not the point of what God said about purity. When God commanded the Israelites to do certain things, to purify themselves before they approached him, it wasn't to just give them an arbitrary to-do list. All right? I'm standing up in heaven, and I've come up with these laws off the top of my head. Do them, or I'm going to be really mad. The point was not to show them how they would earn their access to God by being pure enough. The point of all these laws was to show them a picture of himself. It was to show them how ridiculously, completely holy God was. When he gives them this laundry list of steps to take in order to just enter into the sanctuary, it was to remind them that on their own, they could not ever be righteous enough to stand before him. He had to give them away. The problem was, they turned ritual purity into an idol in and of itself. The point of these things was to be able to stand in the sanctuary of God to worship and connect with God. But what they did was they they made the rituals the entire point and God was forgotten about completely. Where the ritual was given to be a stepping stone, they turned the ritual into a destination. That's why Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks seven woes over the Pharisees. He condemns them for their self-righteous hypocrisy. And in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In other words, Jesus is telling them, You make sure all the purity laws are followed down to the T, but you ignore the purpose for which those purity laws were supposed to create, which is a heart that is devoted to God, which invites people into his presence by his mercy. You do all these things to look great on the outside, but none of it changes your heart. You've missed the entire point, is what Jesus is telling them. Now, Jesus tells them, That this doesn't mean that they shouldn't have kept the law. 
Jesus isn't saying, oh yeah, all those commands, ignore those. Jesus didn't say that. He says, yes, you should tithe and, and you should live righteously. You should follow the commands. But you have to make sure that you're doing it for the right reason. It isn't to impress me, nor is it to impress everybody else by how pure you are. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus says that the Pharisees tie up these heavy burdens, burdens that are too hard to bear, and they lay these burdens on people's shoulders. They take all these laws and they hang them around people's necks. And they say, these are the things you have to do in order to get to God. Watch us. Just, just watch us. We'll, we'll show you how to be pure. We'll show you how to follow the laws. See how righteous we are? Now, who's the real object of worship in that scenario? God or the Pharisee? Joshua Harris, along with many others, made a religion out of purity. He laid out this religion based upon what you have to do and what you must not do to remain acceptable to God. And when a person failed to uphold that system, they were shown the door. In one of his recent interviews, Harris admitted, very shamefully, I excommunicated people for any kind of unrepentant sin, sexual sin, unbiblical divorce, pursuing a homosexual lifestyle, etc. Any type of unrepentant sin, I was a part of excommunication. By his own admission, Harris set himself between people and the God he claimed to represent. And he told them that if they didn't do what he said, they could not pass through. He made himself a mediator between God and man. Now again, I'm not in any way trying to deny or downplay how God has designed sex and sexuality or any of his commands. But what I am saying is that those commands are not destinations. Those commands are signposts. The heart of God is not, I am angry with you. Follow these arbitrary draconian rules and I will relent. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is I love you, and, and I want what's best for you. I want you to thrive. I, I, I want you to be fulfilled and satisfied, and I know the path to get you there. Let me show you the way to joy and satisfaction. Follow me. Trust me. I will even lay my own life down for you to show you the way. Later on in this series, we're going to talk about more things that need to be deconstructed, that we need to walk away from. But this provides us one example. We need to walk away from a religion where purity is the destination rather than the signpost. And in doing so, let me remind you of the thesis statement that I made last week. People are deconstructing Because they've been given a false gospel, a false God, and a false representation of Scripture. And as they walk away from that God, they're led to believe that there is no God. Joshua Harris was right to walk away from the Pharisaical religion of ritual. A religion that did great damage to its followers. But in walking away from that false faith, he came to the conclusion that there was no true faith. Instead of walking out of that and into the arms of Jesus, he he just walked out of ritual and into nothingness. He looked at the damage 
that he had done by forcing people to live by these restrictions. And in his recoil at his own failures, he just dropped the whole thing and threw the baby out with the bathwater. In, in a recent interview, he said this, I definitely don't have the confidence I used to in advancing what I think. And so in my estimation, I, I think that Harris was so deeply affected by his own failures that out of fear for the damage that, that he would do, he just dropped everything altogether. Even after deconstructing, a short time after that, he came up with a, a course, an online course for deconstruction, a 247-page document to help people walk through deconstruction. It was very fresh after he walked away, and there was backlash, and people were like, whoa, 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 you've been deconstructed for five minutes, and now you're going to tell everybody how to deconstruct, and you're going to charge $400 for a course to do that? What's going on, dude? And so after that backlash, he took everything down. He, 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 he dropped it from the internet. He's so afraid to hurt anybody again that he's paralyzed. And he just decided, I'm not going to, I'm going to stand here and I'm not going to do anything. And that fear of moving has prevented him from, from advancing in the future. Um, when I was, I think, 11, maybe 10, 10, 10 or 11 years old, I had a moment of paralyzing fear, okay? It is, to this day, the scariest moment of my entire life. And I'm not making that up. That's no exaggeration, okay? Me and my three brothers were out in the yard, and we were playing baseball, okay? And the way that we always played sports in my family was me versus my three brothers. I was more athletic than them, and so I would always beat them, so it would be the three of them against me. So we're playing baseball. And it's the bottom of the ninth, and I have the bases loaded with ghost men, okay? My youngest brother is pitching. At the time, he's like six, okay? A- and he was a runt. If you see a picture of my brother now, he is jacked. He could take anybody here. But at the time, he was a, he was a runt, okay? So he's pitching. I got the bases loaded with ghost men. And he delivers the most delicious pitch I have ever seen in my entire 11 years, okay? It's coming towards me in slow motion. I have time to think about it as it's approaching. Like, I'm visualizing what's going to happen. It's taking all this time, and it comes right into the wheelhouse, and I put all of my 11-year-old body into this thing. Ah, I ripped it. And it's a line drive that hit him right in the face. Boom! Hits him right in the eye. The back of his head hits the ground before the rest of his body does. And he is out cold. And in that moment, I swear to you, in that moment, I thought, oh my God, I killed my brother. Truly, in that moment, I was convinced my brother is dead and it's my fault. I am a murderer and now my brother's dead. There was a period of about maybe 10 seconds that felt like 10 hours. While we just stood there in shock, my other brothers are like in the outfield with their their jaws open like, oh my God, you just killed Nicholas. And then in in, in the most beautiful sound I've ever heard in my entire life, he starts screaming bloody murder, like blood curling scream in the pain that he was experiencing. And it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard because I was like, he's alive. He's, he's probably never going to see again, but he is alive. He did fully recover, and, and he has sworn to get me back for that. He hasn't yet. He's kind of holding that in his back pocket. But the point of that story is, after that moment, 
I never play baseball again, ever. I, I, I would go out with my friends to play baseball, and I'd stand in the batter's box, and I'd be like, no, I can't do this. I, I would see that moment where I'd almost killed somebody, and I could never bring myself to play the game again, which is a shame. I might be in the MLB right now. Based on the velocity of that last hit, I had the talent to go pro, but the Lord had other plans, and here I am. But after I hurt somebody, I was too scared to ever play the game again. That's exactly what happened with Joshua Harris. After he hurt so many people, he was too scared to ever play the game again. And it was based on everything that he would do. And everything is on his shoulders. And now that he's had that experience, he's decided, I can't do this. Which shows us that there's a tremendous danger in placing the burden on your own shoulders for the work of the kingdom of God. When it becomes about you, it all falls down. And people get hurt. So, what then should faith actually look like? Look at what Jesus tells Nicodemus in verses 9 through 16. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here's point number three. Salvation is found in looking to God, not in what you show to God. Salvation is found in looking to God, not in what you show to God. <laughs> Jackpot. <laughs> That's a good shot, Bree. So here Jesus questions him. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he's like, hold on. You're one of the religious leaders of Israel. You're out there teaching all the people. And you don't understand what it means to be saved? You, you are representing or, or claiming to represent God to everyone else. And when I'm telling you these simple truths, you don't follow. You don't, you don't get what I'm saying. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's confronting Nicodemus' religion of doing. Nicodemus had a religion of doing, performing, acting. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. In order to be saved, you must believe. And so then Jesus points to something in the Old Testament. Something that Nicodemus would have been very, very familiar with. These guys had the Old Testament memorized, word for word, okay? I can't memorize that much. These guys had the entire Old Testament, word for word, down pat. So Jesus takes him to a passage that he would have known very, very well. This passage in Numbers about the bronze serpent. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the sun be lifted up. 
Now, if you were here over the summer and, and you were a part of our series called Why Is This Even In Here?, we looked at that story in Numbers. It was a weird story, right? Like there, there's a situation where all the Israelites are complaining and whining, and so God sends a curse, and, and the curse is snakes. And, and the Israelites get bit by these snakes. And then they cry out, God help us. And so God speaks to Moses, and he says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze serpent, and I want you to lift it up. And everyone who looks on that serpent will be saved. Weird. Right? And so what we talked about in that series, in that, in that sermon, I should say, was that the bronze snake was two things at the same time. It, it was a symbol of God's judgment, and it was a symbol of God's grace. It was a symbol of God's judgment because the snakes were the very things that bit the Israelites. But then he reversed course, uh, I'm sorry, reversed the curse by using the snake to be the vehicle for salvation. And that is exactly what the cross represents. The cross is both a symbol of God's holy judgment and a symbol of God's mercy and grace. The cross is a sign that God is just and a sign that God is good. Death is our deserved punishment because of sin. But instead of dying, we look to Christ. And because of that, we are saved. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus that the bronze serpent was a foreshadowing of what he would do for us. So he tells Nicodemus, listen, salvation is not found in how much you know or how well you serve or or how rigidly you follow the laws. Salvation is only found in looking to me. You must look to me. Did that just shut off? That's weird. That's all right. We're almost done. Joshua Harris walked away from faith altogether. He fully deconstructed. Nicodemus, it seems, did not make the same mistake. Now, we don't have any passage of scripture that definitively shows us a a conversion, right? There's nowhere in scripture that comes out and says, and then Nicodemus prayed to receive Christ into his heart, right? There's no passage that uses those words ever, but... We don't find a a specific reference to him surrendering to Christ or walking away from his position as a Pharisee, renouncing his former life. But what we do have are a couple of, of scenes where Nicodemus shows up, and in the first, he tries to stand up for Jesus and his disciples. And the second is when Nicodemus is the one who prepares Jesus' body for burial. In John chapter 7, the, uh, the disciples are in trouble, and, um, and they come to uh, the Pharisees, and, and, and there's, a, there's an argument, right? And, and so um, Nicodemus says, uh, is it in our law to give a man judgment without giving him a proper hearing? And the other Pharisees respond from Galilee. In other words, what are you, one of his boys? Nicodemus stands up and goes, well, hold on, guys. Let's, let's, give, let's give Jesus and his disciples a fair shake. Let, let's, not, let's not break our own laws. And that was a, a bold move. He stands up in the council of the Sanhedrin, and he stands up for, for Jesus. And they're like, what do you want, his side? Are you, are you from the same hometown? Like, are you a Galilean too, dog? Like, what, what's, what's the problem? Then the second passage that we have is in John chapter 19. 
In John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. This is a job that in this culture was typically reserved for women, preparing a body for burial. And here he uses 75 pounds of spices. Now that might not mean anything to you, but in this culture, that's a buttload of money. Okay, this is very, very, very expensive. This is a rich man lavishing and honoring the body of Jesus. And one commentary points out the significant note that it's Nicodemus, not the disciples, who are doing this. Jesus' own disciples ran away in fear, leaving Jesus' body in in the hands of, of Pilate. It's Nicodemus that approaches Pilate with Joseph of Arimathea and says, can we take the body of Jesus? Again, that's a bold move, one that the rest were not brave enough to make. And so in these two scenes, while this is not definitive, they do certainly seem to show a man whose allegiance has shifted, shifted over to Jesus. It does seem like Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 was life-changing. And we do know from other passages that were, there were a great number of Pharisees and priests who came to know Jesus in, in genuine faith. In, in Acts chapter 7, verse 6, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. In Acts chapter 15, verse 5, in the Jerusalem council, it says, Some who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, I'm sorry, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it's necessary to circumcise them and to, to order them to keep the law of Moses. So a group of Pharisees, who in this particular situation are still holding on to the old stuff, we're not going to hold that against them, this points out the fact that a number of the Pharisees came to saving faith in Jesus. That is significant. So these facts all put together lead me personally to believe that Nicodemus left a religion of ritual to follow Jesus. I think all of us hold on to the hope that Josh Harris does the same thing someday. But in the meantime, let me leave you with this brief point of application. Let your doing for God be an outpouring of your knowing God. Let your doing for God be an outpouring of your knowing God. If it isn't, you are building your faith on a foundation that will crumble. Perhaps you'll deconstruct. Perhaps you won't. And you'll stay under the weight of this system your whole life. But you will not find joy. You'll find fear, doubt, and insecurity. You'll be damaged on earth. And far worse, you won't find salvation in looking to Jesus. So, let us take a much needed step today. Let's kiss self-righteousness goodbye, because that is something that definitely needs to be deconstructed. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for challenging us this evening by bringing us to a place 
where you show us that we need you to look to you, to trust in you, to lay down our own efforts, and then to follow you faithfully as a response, not as a way to get you to love us. Thank you that you love us no matter what we do. Thank you that none of us are pure, ever, no matter how we follow the rules. None of us are pure, but you offer us purity that you've purchased for us. God, I pray for any person who is here, any person watching online right now, any person listening on the podcast that has never come to a place of surrender, never come to a place where they have laid down their doing to trade it in for knowing. God, I pray that today you would call them to that very thing. Call them to repentance. Right now in this moment, may they say to you, Jesus, I look to you. Will you save me? I can't do this on my own. I can't earn your favor. I've tried so hard. But I know that you forgive every failure. That you died on the cross for my sins. You paid my penalty. You rose from the grave. You defeated death. And you offer me eternal salvation. And I look to you to receive it. God, I pray that if there are people who are making that decision, that tonight they would make that known to somebody here. The person who brought them, one of the leaders, myself, whomever, that we can begin this process of discipleship. God, I pray for, for the rest of us who, who at some point have, have given ourselves to you, but in various ways have, have fallen back into doing like the the believers in the Pharisee party did in Acts 15. Take us out uh, of that false faith and and help us to follow you in the right way, to not make an idol out of purity, but to use purity as a vehicle to get into your presence. Help us to lay down before you whatever it is that we need to lay down before you. And as we worship you, pray that we would give you the worship and the victory and the honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Do you think that'll work? No? Try it.